Right, good morning. It's cool. I don't want to be here either. Just kidding. Uh, turned out to be a pretty decent crowd. They were sending warnings all week, like, hey, there might be a rapture. No one's going to come. That's why they let me speak. So um, anyways, I'm glad you're here. My name's Stephen. I'm one of the elders here at the branch, and uh, it's really my great privilege and honor to get to teach before you uh, every few weeks or so. Uh, we're in Hebrews. If you're new, a couple of things. If this is your first time, welcome. We really are glad you're here. Our church functions kind of like a dysfunctional family. So um, anyways, glad you're here. Join a family group. Uh, we'll get to the announcements later. I might weave them into the sermon to see how many bonus points I can get. But um, we've been in uh, the book of Hebrews or the letter to the Hebrews for really the last uh, year plus, and, and we'll be there for a, a few more weeks before we transition out of, of Hebrews. But um, So if you've, if you've been around and you've been tracking, we're in Hebrews 12, and we're, we're coming to uh, kind of the middle, really the, the crux of, of Hebrews 12. We're, we're going to dive into there today. So we're in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. I'm going to read it as we begin, and then we'll pray and, and dive in. Um, we preach uh, at the branch, we preach line by line, and we do that for a couple of reasons. One, it's because God's word is better than my word. Trust me, I know me. Uh, two, we want to be faithful to the text that God gave us. We don't want to pass over the things that are hard. And just a fair warning, this is one of those passages that's challenging. It can be tough. So let's read it, let's dwell on it, let's wrestle with it this morning. And uh, Pierce, it's going to get better, bud. I'm sorry. All right, let's read the word of the Lord. This is Hebrews 12, verse 12. It says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. But Father, we love you. We're so grateful for this place that we can gather this morning freely and openly and dive into your word. We pray for our friends uh, who are getting married today in Tennessee, and so many of our church family are there to celebrate uh, their story and what you're doing in their life. And I pray that you'd go before them uh, this day, that you would forever etch it. Uh, in the history of this church as we come around uh, the birth, really, of a new family on mission for your glory and our good. So we pray for those uh, today who are there. God, I pray now that you would go before us in a mighty way, that you would help us to wrestle well with this text. Would you help us to look at the example that you're setting forth through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you, if you haven't been around, uh, Hebrews 12 is a little bit of a pivot, right? You've, you know Hebrews 11, surely, the hall of faith, right? And the writer, uh, who is unknown, 
is giving us example after example from the Old Testament of people to, for us to imitate, for us to follow. So really the, the main idea is that the writer needed to give us an example. It's one thing for him to tell us, hey, do this, do that. It's another for him to say, hey, watch this person and do what they're doing, right? This is, uh, this is leadership, okay? Um, where I'm going to do something and you're going to watch me do it, and then I'm going to let you do it, and then I'm going to watch you do it, and then you're equipped to do it, right? That's good leadership. That's what Jesus did with the disciples, okay? That's what the author, the writer, the preacher of this sermon is giving us in Hebrews 11. And then in Hebrews 12, we have this, this shift, really, of kind of a negative example, right? Hebrews 11 being positive examples, good things, follow these people. Hebrews 12 being the opposite of that. And so what I want to do right now is I just want to lay before you kind of the main idea that this, this analogy of a race, right, it's something that Paul uh, uses. Paul didn't write Hebrews officially. Um, but Paul uses this idea of racing a lot, right? Endurance race, the marathon, finish the race. This morning, the idea is not to win the race because the race has been won. The idea is to finish the race before us, okay? So this is a message of endurance and perseverance, really more than anything else. So the main idea here is in order to finish the race of the Christian faith, we must clear all the obstacles. We must encourage one another as brothers and sisters and we need to heed the warning that the scriptures give us of these negative examples, specifically of Esau. And we'll dive into his story here in a little bit. I think it's uh, appropriate for us just to begin as we dive into this text, just to lay it all out on the line and say that being a Christian is really tough. Amen? It can be really hard. It can be really challenging. And there are parts of this world that's even harder than what we experience now. We certainly here uh, will experience... Um, being neglected or being rejected, marginalized for our faith. Uh, my first real experience with that happened when I was in college. I was in an um, astronomy class. If you are rooted in your faith, um, astronomy is a hard class to sit through, okay? And uh, there were a lot of worldviews being thrown at us that I just couldn't, I didn't understand. I had been wrestling, I'd been a Christian for a while, I had been really wrestling with God's Word, and it seemed what was being thrown at us in the classroom was the antithesis to everything that I had placed my faith in. The work that God had done in my life was antithetical to the work that was happening in this astronomy class, <clears throat> so I dropped it, and I left, and uh, it cost me an extra semester, but you know what? It is what it is, right? Um, I was a baseball player, so I just, the school just paid for me to do it again, so it was fine. Uh, cost me nothing. And uh, anyways, but we have this, right? That, that's what it feels like. And there were these conversations where I would ask questions and the professor would, would marginalize my question with his response. It was always very sarcastic. It was quite rude. Uh, and maybe you've experienced that, right? That, that seems like not that big of a deal, but it really kind of is, right? And I don't, I don't want to make much of my story because I'm sure you have stories like it too. But while that, I wasn't physically harmed, there was a certain sort of a mental harm or an emotional harm where I was having to wrestle through, okay, this is what I believe, and I have been demeaned because of my belief. Have you been there? And it may not be a professor. It could be worse than that. It could be your best friend, okay? That guy was, uh, my son's in here. He was not a nice person, okay? He, he was rude. And what we have to understand is that's what happens when good news is presented, Right? The world has rejected good news since the day that bad news entered the world. 
right? And Christians, God's people, have been trying to figure out how do we crawl back to the example of the garden? How do we get back to the garden where everything was perfect with God? It isn't perfect. I mean, we can look around this little town and know that it's not perfect. And heaven forbid if we zoom out and look at our country or if we look at the world, everything is not well. And yet we have hope. And I think this is why the writer here keeps referencing this race. Not to win the race, because the writer is firm in his response to who win. The, the, the race has been won. Christ has won. He's victorious. He cannot be defeated. And regardless of how rude someone is, the race is worth running well. And what we have been called to do is to finish the race and to bring others, to encourage others, our brothers and sisters here. That's what we do, by the way, on Sundays. This is like the pit stops. If, you're, if you've uh, run long races, they have like pit stops where you can pick up like these nasty gels that you, and you try to down them, you know. That's what we do here. This is where we pick up our nutrition. This is where we pick up our nutrients, our water to finish well. And so we all come in limping a little bit, don't we? We come through this door, though. Right, we come in through here, and we come in with a, a little bit of a gimp. And it's like that first pit stop in a marathon where it doesn't feel good. I've been training for a marathon, and it's horrible. Uh, I'm kind of to the point where I'm doing like, you know, 10 to 15 miles on a Saturday, and that's not even close to a marathon. And at the end of it, I feel like I'm going to die. And there's no checkpoint, right? There's like a little uh, community park where I just like, try to fill up with as much water as I can get out of the dog bowl. You know, but we get to those points, right, where we start off really hard, right? And the analogy then would be, have you ever seen a new Christian and how they operate in the world? They are on, what do we always say, man, that person's on fire for the Lord, right? Or you go to youth camp or you go to a big conference and you come back and you're just, you have this newfound energy for the gospel and then you keep running and then what happens, you kind of lose steam, and you need that next checkpoint where you can get the energy back and you can keep running the race. That's what we're doing here. The race of the Christian faith is a hard, long race. And there are many who fall away. Okay? Now, that's a whole other theological conversation that we're not going to have this morning. But Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12, says this. It says, Therefore, right, it's pointing back to the passage before us, this analogy of the race and parental discipline, okay? It's something else that the writer spends a lot of time talking about. It says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, right? There's this idea that as we go and we lose energy, you, it's hard to keep your hands above your head for long, right? And so our hands begin to they, they droop, and we, you get tightness in your shoulders, and you don't feel good. This idea of strengthen your weak, your weak knees is really a reference to fear, right? You ever been so scared your knees were shaking? It's a real thing, right? It's kind of like a universal sign of fear. You know, you might get like start doing something weird with your hands, or your teeth might chatter, but your knees are definitely shaking, right? Uh, Dylan and Lexi are getting married today. I promise you, Dylan's knees will be knocking, okay? Lexi's going to be there, she's going to be gorgeous, and she's going to be ready, and Dylan's going to be like, she could have done so much better than me, right? And his knees are just going to be shaking. Every husband, it's not Dylan, right? That was true at my wedding, too. It's true of every husband. Uh, Outkick your coverage is what they say, right? So, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your 
weak knees. Listen to how it transitions into verse 13. And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Okay, let's go back to the race. There's this um, movement going around in endurance racing where they, now, endurance wasn't enough, so they, like, will electrocute you. Okay, like these Spartan races and the, what was the other one, the mud, the tough mudder, right? Basically, it's an obstacle race because, like, running long distance isn't hard enough. They want you to, like, go over a wall and climb a rope, and then there's, like, barbed wire. I don't, people love it. It's got, like, a cult following, right? That's a much harder race than if I'm going to go straight to the back of the room, right? So what the writer is saying is get rid of the obstacles. Get rid of the things, and maybe it's your astronomy class, right? Maybe it's the person that you're dating. Maybe it's a, your best friend. Maybe it's the, the job that you're working at. But we are bombarded with these ob- obstacles that distract us from what God has for us. And what God has for us is for our good and for his glory. And when we get distracted, guess what we stop doing? We stop worshiping first. We may still come to church, but we're distracted here. And then we, the same limp that we walked in with, we walk out with, and no one knows because we are too ashamed to talk about it. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. In the New Testament, there's a lot of conversation around healing Right? When we look at the Gospels, when we look at Jesus' encounter, his ministry in the world, his physical ministry while he was here, he did a lot of healings. Right, You have Jairus' daughter, the 12-year-old girl who uh, falls dead, and Jesus is on the way. You guys know the story. He's on the way, and then there's the hemorrhaging woman who distracts him, and then Jesus finally gets there, and the girl's dead. Right? You know the story? Jesus goes, and he brings the family in, and she, don't worry, she's not dead. She's just asleep. And the little girl wakes up, right? The little girl eventually did die. You know this? Like she was healed physically. She didn't stay dead in the period when Jesus comes in, she was actually back to life. Or the the blind man, right? His sight was physically healed and yet he still died, right? Because there's another healing that's coming. And that's what this text is about. It's not about your limp. It's about your death right? The gospel says this, the gospel didn't come so that lame people could walk faster, but that dead people could become alive and walk, period. That's what the gospel is, okay? Does that make sense? So a lot of times, and maybe the church you grew up in is like the church that I grew up in, and the gospel is like this life raft, and all you have to do is cling hold of it. It isn't. It's an anchor that goes to the depths of the ocean because your dead body is laying there, and it pulls you out of the water. That's what the gospel is, Right? Have you ever seen the image? We did this in uh, the, uh, what used to be the Branch School of Theology, but has kind of transitioned into some of the family groups. Right? Have you ever seen the, the diagram where you have you on one side, and then there's a, a big cavern, right? and then there's Jesus on this side? Right? And, and we're trying to figure out, well, how do we get, over, how do we get across? And then the youth pastor, because we know this guy, right? he draws a big cross, and the cross gets you from here to here, and now you're with Jesus. Have you seen this analogy? It's garbage. That's not the gospel, okay? And you can tell your youth pastor that I said it. Give him my number or give him Gabe's number. He's not here today, all right? 
If this is your first time, Gabe's the, the primary teaching guy, and I just come up here and usually clean up his messes, but he's going to have to clean up mine next week. So, right, so I'm going back to the analogy because I, I divert, right, in true Gabe fashion. Right? So we have this analogy or this picture, this diagram, where there's this valley, and we're on one side, and Jesus is on the other, and all we needed was the cross to bring us to Jesus. We didn't need the cross to bring us across to Jesus. We needed the cross to go down to the pit of the valley, into the pit of the cavern, and to bring us up because we were dead in our trespasses. That's what the Bible says. The problem is, we don't read our Bible. We're tired. We're weary. And we've given up. That is the state of the American church, my friends. Maybe not you, but is as a whole, the state of the evangelical church in America is just that of apathy. We're just getting by. We're okay to show up on Sunday. We might go to a family group. We might do the thing. We might volunteer at some nonprofit. We might give some money, but we're spiritually dead. Our hands have drooped. Our knees have shaken to the point where they're no longer moving. And we've just lost interest. We've lost interest in our community. We've lost interest in our neighborhood. We've lost interest in the people we're sitting next to today. We've lost interest in the message that actually gave us life in the first place. And then what happens when you're tired? What happens when you get hungry? You get mean. Hangry, as my kids say. It's going to happen in about 45 minutes. So I'm going to wrap this up, right? People always say, well, how long do you usually preach? Long enough to make sure I get to lunch in time for my kids not to get upset, right? So that's one thing we've got going, right? But you know that feeling when you're exhausted, when you've been burning it at both ends, and then you just snap at everyone. Have you been there? It's okay to say yes because I have been, right? And what happens? It's division. It's disunity creeping into your life. Your weariness has led to an apathy that's led to division. Division in your family, division in your friends, certainly division in the church because the church is tired. We need to lift our drooping hands. C.S. Lewis writes this. I love this quote. You might have heard it. If you've read C.S. Lewis, then you've certainly read this quote. It says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. Our pain is this megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That was 60 years ago. It's still true. It's prophetic in a sense that what we need is to be roused. We need to be shaken. We need to wake up just a little bit. We need to allow our heartbeat to activate our bodies again. We need to lift our drooping hands and move forward. We need to straighten the path. We need to get rid of the obstacles. And what the author is specifically talking about is a sin in our lives. Your sin and my sin, right? The whole cross. It's our sin that built that cross. It's our sin that put Jesus on it, right? And we forget, usually what happens is we forget what we've been saved from pretty quickly, right? We'll tell our testimony and we'll talk about how bad we were, right? And we, we kind of forget that because things are going good. But what we forget first is what we've been saved to or who we've been saved to, right? I've been saved from this horrible past and we're going to hear of a horrible past of the story of Esau. But it's less about what you've been saved from 
and more about what you're saved to. See, the Christian story is one of movement, and it's always moving forward, right? This is what we call sanctification, all right? And this is a fancy theological word to say, looking more like Jesus. And that whole process, the looking more like Jesus part, is painful. It's loud. It's the megaphone that God uses to rouse our deaf hearts, okay? In these verses, this is specifically verses 12, 13, in 14, the writer's trying to get us to understand that we must pursue peace. Peace with ourselves, peace with one another, and peace with the people that God has placed around us. Right? True peace comes from a place of energy, not of apathy. Right? So as you become nourished again, as you cross that checkpoint and you get your, your gel and you're going and you're moving forward again, what happens is you get this renewed energy. And that renewed energy brings the people in your life back together, right? Almost like a magnet. And that magnet is the peace that God gives us as we move and as we steward our lives in community. Because here's the one thing that I've learned. I'm 36 years old. I've been pastoring since I was like 22, okay? I was ordained the weekend after I graduated from college, all right? The one thing that I know and I know this to be true more than I know anything else to be true in life, that the Christian life was not meant to be lived alone. If you watch a real good endurance runner, he has a team. There are people around him who help him get across the finish line. It's not just about getting to the finish line. It's about getting across the finish line. The Christian life was meant to be lived like that. And that's why we get this analogy in Hebrews 12 and many other places in Scripture. We were meant to live together. This is why the gospel is best understood through the lens of family. This is why everything we do at the branch is through the context of a family, right? And sure, maybe some of you, you're here this morning and your family is dysfunctional. They got TV shows about your family. That's the hope. You know, we hear all the time that people say, gosh, I just don't, I can't see God as a good and loving father because my dad was mean. God is a good and loving father, has nothing to do with your dad, your earthly dad. You can have a great dad and still have a hard time seeing God as a perfect and loving father, and yet that is who he is. Right? Last week and the week before, we've been talking about parental discipline in the lens of this race. A good and loving father disciplines his children. A bad father disciplines his children out of anger. Right? Fathers are going to discipline their kids, if they're present at all, right? But a good father disciplines out of love, not out of fear, not out of anger, right? It's one thing for me to convince my kids to do something because I've threatened them. It's another for me to convince them to do something because I've loved them there, right? I've done both, right? I think we probably all have, right? As we get tired, as we get weary, what happens? We get angry. All right. Verse 14 says, strive for peace with everyone. I don't know if you write in your Bible, um, everyone's a pretty good word to underline or to circle, highlight, or I don't know, if you don't like to write, I don't like to write in my Bible, there's zero, there's no markings in this Bible whatsoever. Um, but if I did, I would circle that word. I have a different Bible that I write in, um, which is a weird thing. Only Americans do that. We have multiple Bibles, so whatever. I defeat my purpose. All right. Strive for peace with everyone. Okay? Now I want to do something really quickly, if you'll let me. Okay? 
Well, we're going to do it anyways. But um, our world, if you were to take a 30,000-foot view, and let's just let's focus on our country, the, state, the country that we live in, okay? If you were to take a 30,000-foot view of, of where we are today as a culture, let's do it that way. I think a culture is a little bit safe, right? And this is, I'm not going politics here, so you're good. I'm good. Are we unified or are we disunified? I need an answer. Okay? Do we act like brothers or do we act like enemies? Okay? I don't care which side you're sitting on. We don't treat each other very kindly, do we? I'm right and you're wrong. And you're wrong and I hate you. That's become the, the narrative of our culture. And it should break our hearts. This is exactly what the writer is going after. The, the church that he's writing to, the Hebrew people, had fractured. They had gotten tired, and there was discord running through the church to the point where now they're starting to fragment, right? They're starting to fracture. There's a division that's cut through deep into the heart of this community. And the writer says, strive for peace with everyone. And that's just not everyone here in our little church, okay? That's everyone that God places in our lives. It's the people you see on TV. It's the people you see on other parts of the country. It's the people you see on your Instagram feed. It's the people that you see out of whatever else kind of apps you got, right? It's all the people. It's God's people. Strive for peace with everyone. And then what does it say? And for the holiness without which no one, right? There's another declarative statement, no one. So how many people is that? It's not a single one. Not a single one. No one will see the Lord. Does that include you? Does it include me? It's no one will see the Lord where peace is not present. Right? The good news that we bring to the world is that there is a peace that is beautiful. There's a peace that uh, did require a battle. The battle's already been won. Right? We're not calling people to a new fight. We're calling people to an old fight, a fight that's already been won. I wonder what it would look like. Forget our culture. Let's step into the church for a minute. What would it look like for the church to be unified? And not, not the branch church, but the church, Big C Church. What would it look like? Think about that. Think about it today as you, as you go home or you go back to your dorm room or your apartment or your house or your job or whatever you got to do. What would it look like if the church as a whole regardless of denomination, regardless of location, regardless of how charismatic their preacher is or how poor he is, right? Regardless of all of that, but all the people who claim the banner of Christ, what would it look like if they unified around the one thing that actually matters? That Jesus came, he lived, he died, he was buried, he rose again on the third day, he ascended to the right hand of the Father for a purpose, so that you and I could be made right with God the Father. What would it look like? I mean, that seems pretty, kind of like the point. I'm pretty sure that's what Jesus had envisioned. And yet we fragment and we fracture, right? All right, let's move into uh, verse 15, 16, and 17, and we'll close. I'm going to read it again, and then we'll dive into it. Verse 15 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. 
that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I think Christians, we've got to be constantly on guard for this bitterness that creeps in, right? Other church down the road is bigger than our church. You might not feel that, but we feel it, right? Or, oh man, the music is better at our church than it is at another church, or whatever, right? This constant discord, this bitterness that leads to division. And then verse 16, we dive into this story of Esau. Do you know the story of Esau, Jacob and Esau? So this is uh, late in Genesis, so like, if you want to go back and read it, it's like Genesis started in chapter 20 and just keep reading until you're out of, until Israel is established, right? But Jacob and Esau are, are brothers, and uh, this is Isaac, right? Isaac is the father, Rebekah is the mom, Esau is the firstborn. Esau was a man's man, he was a Delonica man, you know what I'm saying? He wasn't one of those buckhead guys, he was a Delonica guy right? He was big. He was burly. He was a hunter. That was rude. I didn't mean anything by it. I'm just saying. I'm trying to paint a picture, right? It's hard to figure, like, to see who, who is this Esau. He was tough. He was, he was hairy, right? He was, he was a man. He, was, he, he lived his life outside. Jacob, the younger brother, wasn't that. He was a mama's boy. Uh, he was the favorite, for sure, of his mom, Rebecca. And later on in their life, and sure, there was fighting and all that, because they were brothers, right? That's what brothers do. Uh, brothers and sisters do that, too. We find that in my family right now. Brothers and sisters will fight each other, uh, don't they? Sometimes, only occasionally, on Fridays after school, that's it, right? But Esau and Jacob fight their whole life. And Jacob, Rebecca, Jacob's mom, comes to him and says, hey, uh, your dad's sick, he's about to die, he needs to issue the blessing, but we need to trick him so that you get the blessing, Okay, so it seems if you're reading the story, and I'd encourage you to do it, that there seems to be some some real swirliness that's going on with Jacob, right? I mean, Jacob doesn't seem like the stand-up guy, right? He kind of seems like, uh, hey, man, this is this doesn't seem like the right way to do this, and he tricks his dad into giving the blessing. Isaac gives Jacob the blessing, and then Esau comes in, figures out what's happened, right? And I, Esau has already sold his birthright because he was hungry, right? So this is the story of of Jacob and Esau, and at the end, Esau is. He's in anguish, right? But he's not in anguish that he gave up his birthright, okay? He's in anguish that he doesn't have the goods of the birthright. So there's no point in Esau's life where he actually repents of sin. He just wants the, he wants the gifts. He wants the stuff, the material, right? That, that was what Esau wanted. So when we hear the writer here say that he sought repentance, right? He had no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears, he was weeping not over the sin, but over the, the stuff, right? Have you ever done that? Where you lose something, there's a consequence in your life, and you're less concerned with what you did to lead to the consequence, and you're more concerned about the actual consequence. You didn't get to go to homecoming, but you did something really silly, right, that got you in trouble. That's what Esau is doing. He never repented of the sin. He just wanted the stuff. That's what we have to be very careful of. There's an unfaithfulness. I think it's important for us to, to wrestle through the, the Bible tends to speak very candidly about sexual immorality, 
Okay, and I'm gonna do this delicately, and I'm gonna do it quick. There is a vice in the human heart when it comes to sexual immorality. And the Bible says that it's different from all the other sins. Do you know why? It's a sin against yourself, right? And it might feel good, it might be good, it might, all of those things, and yet you have, you have defaced and defamed your, the temple that God has given you, which is your body, right? It's one thing to get angry at your neighbor. It's one thing to like, I don't know, throw rocks at them or something like that. It's something completely different when you enter into a situation where you've exposed yourself sexually. And what God is saying is that there's, there's a cloud that covers you. Have you ever felt that, right? Where you feel an immense amount of shame. Well, so much shame that you don't feel like you could ever get out of it. The gospel is there too, okay? But there's a clear and present warning throughout scripture that this is the greatest obstacle in the race that is the Christian faith. This is it. And we live in a world that celebrates it and publicizes it and makes much of it. And all the while, we're turning our backs hard on the gospel of Jesus. And so I want to encourage you, I, I, I don't know what that looks like in your life, whether it's stuff online or whether it's meeting up or whatever it is. There's freedom that's only found in Jesus. It's it, period. And that vice, that sin, will keep you from knowing true faith. That's what we are for. And we covenant here. By the way, there's a membership of the Branch Church, we covenant not just to walk together through stuff like that, but to fight like crazy as brothers and sisters. And that's my promise. So if you're walking through that today, you want to come find me afterwards? We can do it in a private place. I'll fight with you. I'll fight hands, tooth, nails, bats. I don't know. You name your weapon of choice and we'll go to war together. And I'm not the only one. That's what church looks like. And when we unify around stuff like this, we find freedom. Because in those moments, there's Jesus standing there. And he keeps saying, come, follow me. Come, follow me. This is, not, this is not what I had for you. Come, follow me. This is not what I had for you. Come, follow me. That's what his final words to his disciples were. And then he sends them out into the world so that the message of the gospel could be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. The cravings of the moment oftentimes outweigh the superior gift in the moment. But it's never life-giving, it's never fulfilling, it's never enough. You always need more. Unfaithfulness leads to irreverence. Irreverence leads to you don't worship. When you don't worship, you fall away. When you fall away, you get lonely, and then you're on a treadmill. It's a cycle. It's no race. No marathon's ever been won on a treadmill. I guess maybe until COVID hit. Now they're doing like virtual marathons, so maybe my analogy breaks down. But you know my point, right? The author gives us these stories. Run the race. It's a race that's been won. Let's finish well. Let's finish together. We cross the finish line in glory. We stand before the face of a son who's been beaten and broken, who died so that we could stand together, so that we could unite around one banner, 
banner that Jesus is our Lord, that he is our Savior. I'll leave you with, with this true repentance. True repentance requires hatred of sin, whatever that might be. True repentance requires hatred of sin. Uh, we're we're going to sing some songs. Uh, we don't do this a ton. We, we usually move into a time of response that is communion, okay? Uh, we've decided that because of all the stuff, we haven't done communion. We've kind of done it periodically, but we're not doing it today, okay? If you need to respond in a way that there, uh, Greg is here. He's another one of our elders. Uh, there's a handful of our deacons here. If, if you want to respond, if, you, if there's something that you need to talk about, I'm trying to give you a safe space. That's what I'm trying to get at, okay? If you need, the lights are going to come down. We'll be in the back, so do that, okay? If you're an elder or a deacon, let's meet in the back. And if you need to yank someone and take them to a side room, let's do that now. Do not go home today limping. Find a brother, find a sister who will fight with you. It's a hard race. It's a long race. It's one that you weren't meant to run alone. We love you, and you need to know that. So we're going to sing a couple of songs and move into a time of, uh, of just response and worship. So let's pray as they come forward. Father, we love you, and we are thankful for these moments where we can dive deep into your word. God, as we talk about uh, the stuff of the world, as we talk about the stuff of our hearts, as we talk about this negative example of Esau and just his, his ungratefulness, his lack of care for his family, his hatred that he had for his brother, that in the midst of it, that you are writing an incredible story that from Jacob, you turn it to Israel and the whole 12 tribes come from Jacob. God, it's an amazing promise that you made to Isaac and to Abraham. And so we know that that promise is true for us today, but it's already been fulfilled in Christ. And so as we respond in these moments, would you just soften our hearts, the calluses of our soul, that you would do a work, that you would sanctify us. Maybe some in the room need to, realizing that they just, they need to be saved today, that you've done a work in their lives. Would, would you move mightily among us? Would you pray, will we pray for those who, who aren't here yet? Not the ones who are at the wedding, but the people in our neighborhoods, the people in our communities, the people in our school, in our classrooms who aren't among us who need to hear the good news that Jesus came and died for them and all the stuff, the garbage that they're carrying, they can let go. Jesus came to breathe life into dead people. It's the message, it's the hope that we have. We thank you for Hebrews, for this great book that we've spent so much time in. Would you help us to constantly look to your son Jesus as our great and guiding example? And now in these moments, would you help us to respond well? Would you help us to worship? Would you lead us to repentance? We love you, and we pray in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.